Bibles this morning, would you turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in a moment from verse 7 of Ephesians 4. Did a little study in this past week uh, online and I was curious what was the greatest snowfall in Virginia on record and it actually occurred in the year 1772 and I understand that both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson wrote about the three foot of snow that dropped in a short period of uh, time and thus it became known as the Washington Jefferson snow of 1772 but you know I love snow and before you get angry and throw something at me uh, I don't like ice but I love snowfall. You know, snowfall accomplishes a, a lot of things, but for me, I, I like the beauty of it as long as it's not too problematic on the road or the power lines. I love looking out, seeing a beautiful white snow. We have red birds in our yard, and uh, I love seeing that. But I was thinking this week, and if you looked on um, your uh, outline in the middle of your bulletin, you know where I'm going with this. I was thinking, how many snowflakes would it take to form an inch of snow in Buckingham County? And uh, so I went online and I, I looked at the square mileage of Buckingham, which is conservatively about 500 square miles. I thought, well, how do you measure that distance and one inch of snow? Well, one cubic inch I studied uh, has about 1,000 snowflakes in it. And some of y'all, you saw some snowflakes yesterday, and you may have said, oh, you got excited, and then it went away. But I won't bother you with all of the math, but basically it takes two quadrillion snowflakes to make one inch of snow spreading over Buckingham County. And I want you to think about this, those two quadrillion not one of them is exactly alike. In fact, uh, you can look at this online as well as I did. There is no snowflake that is exactly like another one. Every one is unique. But when these snowflakes come together, they have the potential to form something beautiful. You know, last week we looked in Ephesians chapter 4, and we talked about unity in the local church and how God desires the church to be unified but unity does not mean uniformity it doesn't mean that we change who we are or what we do that we have to be gifted exactly as someone else unity and uniformity are two distinct things but God's desire is this that in the midst of our differences even as that beautiful snow that we as individuals as parts of the member of the body come together and we form something that is unified and something that is mature and something that's effective. With that in mind, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Let's pray. Fathers, we look today at your word again. We thank you, Lord, that there is diversity in the unity. But Father, you don't call us to be just like anyone else, but Lord, you have orchestrated and placed the members in this local body, even as you desire. And so, Father, as we look at this today, may our resolve be this coming year that we would be the best individual component of this body that we can be for your glory, working with, not against one another, and giving evidence of the maturity and the unity that comes as we grow toward you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this passage today really interrelates with the verses we looked at last week. You know, the church is made up of diverse people. In fact, it's a good thing that we have diverse people. Some of you, um, I won't call you sinners, but you actually like chicken pot pie. I don't like chicken pot pie, okay? And that's okay. We don't have to be alike, all right? And it's not just our preferences that differ, but, but our natures are different. We have different things that motivate us, different things that might drive us. And the beauty and the miracle of the church is how God brings individual parts together as one. And so today we're going to look at the fact that collectively we can be a great work of God, that this local body, as we come together as individuals, if we will grow toward Christ, if we will pursue that, then God will do amazing things. That was God's desire for the church at Ephesus here. And so as he writes about really not various gifts, but the persons who possess these gifts in verse 11, I want to look at those, but I want to look at even more than that to God who gives the gifts and then God's desire as he gifts the church, as he places persons in the church. But the first thing I want to look at this morning is the giver of spiritual gifts in the church. Now, we know that it is God who gives these gifts. Uh, we're not talking about innate abilities that we have. Even those are from God. But specifically in the church, God sees persons, God sees individuals, and he gifts them so the church might work effectively for his glory. Now, there are various gifts they may not be as numbered as the snowflakes that cover the world, but there are many. And there are many individuals who possess those gifts. And even within the gifts, there are distinctions. For instance, the gift of teaching. I had the privilege when I was in seminary of sitting under professors who clearly had a gift of teaching from the Holy Spirit. They were especially endowed to teach. But their method 
and their mode of teaching may differ within that gift. So even within the distinction of gifts, even within those gifts, how they operate may be distinct. And so God has orchestrated all of this. So this morning, we're going to see that God places you and me in the church as distinct individuals with unique gifts, with unique callings to carry out his purpose, to meet the needs in the church. And we're going to see not just in the church, but if the church is to be what it's called to be in our community and world. But it's all about God. God is the orchestrator. He's the source of the gifts. He's the one who places individuals in the church. He's the one who orders the church, and he's the one to whom we're to please. Well, I want to look at him just briefly this morning before we look at the gifts themselves, but I want to see first that God who gives these gifts is triumphant. Look at what it says in verse 9, referencing uh, Psalm 68.8. It says, for it says, and you may notice it may be in bold print because it's quoting the Old Testament. When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? In other words, what we see here is God being pictured as a triumphant general who had finished the conquest. And, and there were two things that would happen when a military commander would experience a triumph at the end of it. First, he would carry out a great procession. There would be a celebration. It would go through the city. And you know, elsewhere in, in the teaching of the New Testament that in that procession, there would also be uh, various aromas and scents that would go up. Some that would be for those who were victorious, a sweet-smelling savor of victory, but for others of defeat. And it was said that in that day that the defeated general and the defeated leader would be marched and humiliated along that procession. And so there would be this procession. But there was a second thing that would happen. The military leader would disperse the gifts, the bounty, with the victorious soldiers. And he's speaking of the second here, of Jesus, whom, or rather, what did Jesus overcome? He overcame death. He overcame death in his resurrection. The scripture speaks of him descending to the lowest part and ascending after his resurrection to be with the Father. And taking that rightful position, everything was placed under his authority. And through his grace, he gives gifts to his people, so he's triumphant. But not only that, he is exalted. Our Lord is exalted. Look at verse 10. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fulfill all things. In other words, among the highest heaven, Jesus is over that. He is at the highest position. He's the most exalted. So as we're looking at this subject of God placing us in the church, of the various gifts and callings in the church, our goal, our desire should be the same that God has, and it's this, that Jesus Christ be lifted up. So if we're ministering, whether it be in song, whether it be through teaching, whether it be through acts of service, or whatever that might be, we should do so to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. He is exalted in heaven. But then there's this third aspect of the giver of gifts. 
He's generous. Not only is he victorious, not only is he exalted, but he's generous. You know, again, in that time, the triumphant general would distribute the bounty gained. He wouldn't keep things for himself, but from his generosity, he would bestow upon those who were with him the fruits of the victory. Verse 7 tells us of God's generosity here. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He is generous toward us. He gifts us in such a way that we might be pleasing to him. So the Lord is triumphant, he's exalted, and he's generous toward us. But then we want to look at verse 11, which is a familiar verse in the Bible. And it speaks about various gifts, but more than the gifts, actually the callings that were enabled by that gift. In other words, not just uh, uh, the gift uh, of teaching, but that one be called to be a teacher. And so we want to look at the nature of the gifts that are listed uh, here in verse 11. Now, now they're varied gifts and varied persons who possess gifts in the church. And God organizes that as he sees fit. While they're not as varied, again, as the types of snowflakes on the earth, there are many diverse groupings of such gifts. They're gifts of helps in service. They're gifts of administration in the church, gifts of wisdom, of discernment, uh, gifts of actually giving or generosity. And so there are a number of groupings of the various gifts listed in the New Testament, but there is a distinct grouping here in verse 11, and these are gifts of instruction. Every gift that is mentioned in verse 11 has to do with verbal instruction, communicating the truth. So it says, and he gave some to be apostles. Now, apostles are foundational gifts, and, and God began the church through the foundation of the apostles. No matter what anyone says, there are no apostles today. The, the foundation has been built. Once the foundation is built, there's no need to, to rebuild that foundation. And so while some people will say, well, I'm sent by God, they're not apostles in the biblical sense. Apostles were individuals who had direct contact with the Lord, who were given the charge at the beginning in establishing uh, the, the truth of Christ's lordship and the establishment of the churches there. Prophets are also listed here, and there are no prophets in this. Now, people may uh, have issues of nomenclature here, but the way I understand prophecy is this, new words from God. There are no new words from God. We have all of God's word in the Bible. Now, some people may expound upon that. They may teach that, but there's no new revelation so if someone calls himself or herself a prophet, the first thing I want to know is what do you mean by prophet? Because there are no prophets today of the sense. Because there's not to be any adding or taking away from the word of God. And so there's no new prophecy. Everything that we have, everything that we need is here in the word of God. People can take it, they teach it, they can study it. There's nothing new to be added. But he goes on in verse 11, some evangelists. 
evangelists would be to me as I study and my understanding itinerant preachers. They could be missionaries, individuals who are gifted and who carry out the calling of traveling and carrying the gospel into areas or into new areas, and we support uh, many of those. And then their pastors, teachers, they would be most prevalent today. They expound the word in settings like we're doing here in the 11 o'clock hour or importantly in the 10 o'clock hour. So as we look at these gifts, as God, who is generous toward us, equips the church, he uses the, the calling of teaching in order to equip. Now, there are very many other gifts that are carried out. As I said, gifts of helps, administration that are all valued. But we see the root or the base of God equipping is the use of these gifts of instruction. And so he highlights these. They're used to or were used in the sense of the apostles to establish the truth, to establish the church. They were used in in regard to the prophets to give revelation from the Lord in the sense today of teachers, whether it be from the pulpit or in the classroom, able to take God's word, which is fully inspired of God in communicating the truth to other people. And it's not the person that is to be lifted up, but it's the utilization of the gift that brings glory to God. And so we see um, this specific gift, these, these, the calling of instructing. But then he moves in verses 12 through 16 to the intent of God's generosity. In other words, God is uh, victorious, he's exalted, he's generous, and that he allows us to participate in the work with him. Uh, he has given us individuals, he's given us his word, uh, to, in the truth whereby we may be equipped to serve him. But I want to look at the intent of God's generosity. God's not wasteful. You know, um, Karen and I, when we shop, we like to shop with the grocery list. Now, we haven't gotten newfangled enough to let people get our groceries for us. I understand it can be really good, though, because if if you want to get great value brand or the uh, uh, name brand for food line and they don't have it, they go up rather than down. They give you something nice. I haven't gotten to that point, but I have known this. When I have my grocery list and I stick to it, I do well. And when I take my eyes off the grocery list and go down the cookie aisle and the chip aisle, I don't do so well. God is ordered, structured. It's not like I would in a grocery store just fly by the seat of my pants and just pick out anything. But God is very detailed. He's not wasteful in his generosity. He's intentional. And so we see the result of the instructional gift. We see why God sends individuals to teach the word, we see why God gives us his word so that we, when we study it at home, the instruction we get from it. There are three results that Paul mentions here that should come as a result of that. The first is God-focused ministry. Notice what he says in uh, 
after verse 11, he lists the individuals who have the gifts in verse 11, and then he mentions their work to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God does not want a church with information overload like the Dead Sea that is just absorbing and taking in and not giving out, but God equips the church that it might serve. Now, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but again, our church is placed where we are to minister. We're to minister in this community as we see need to our neighbors. We're, we're to minister within the walls. We know that, and part of the ministry is to those who are in the church. But we are strategically placed in southern Buckingham County. We, we talked about it before Christmas. Uh, my home church in Appomattox, Karen's home church in, um, in uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, they have no mind for southern Buckingham County. I mean, they're not offended by us. It just doesn't cross. But we live here. We're given responsibility here, but we're also to carry out ministry around the world. I want to encourage you, this Wednesday, we're beginning a study on relational evangelism, how people that we bump into, how people we're connected with, everything from family members to close associates to person X who is out there of ways that we can reach them. And it's amazing the opportunities. I was talking with someone yesterday, and we were in agreement. You may just show up at Shepherd's Store, and somebody there in this community has a need, and God makes it very clear. God equips us. When we study the Bible, we get truths from it so that we might be able to use what we have received and be giving in ministry. And so God's desire in instructing us in his word is that we have God-focused ministry. This, the second thing we see is that we would have God-generated maturity. God wants us to grow. We should grow. If we're healthy, we will grow. You know, I miss having my children around. Uh, we're empty nesters now. I went back to my home where I grew and um, my mom actually, in one of our closets, had uh, pencil marks as we would grow. She would put the year. And I can remember how I felt then. I just wasn't growing as I should. But we expect physical growth. We expect emotional growth. You know, if a three-year-old has a tantrum, uh, we're not surprised. If a 33-year-old has a, a tantrum, we've got a problem, Houston, you know. But there should be spiritual growth in the church. And so God gives us his word, not just to equip us for ministry, but he gives us his word to equip us for maturity. In fact, throughout verses 12 through 16, we see maturity. Notice what it says, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. That, that's the picture of an edifice going up, of building, of progressing. Verse 15, but speaking in the truth in love, let us grow in every way toward him who is the head Christ. In other words, it speaks again of that word grow. We would consider a, a person to grow, an animal to grow, a plant to grow. But notice what it says, to grow up toward the head, to grow in Christ's likeness, progress. Those are just the two verbs. Look at the nouns. Look at verse 13. 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into what? Maturity. Growing into maturity. With what? A stature. A stature. Not just any stature, but measured by Christ's fullness, by his statue. Verse 14, that we will not be infants or little children, that we would possess the fullness of God's knowledge. God's desire is that we might grow. And he gives us the Bible, and he gives us the preaching of his word, the teaching of his word to equip us not just for ministry, but to equip us for maturity. But then there's another result of the gifts and the callings that are mentioned in verse 11, and it's this, God-centered unity. We see that in verses 13 through 16. It's not just that God wants us to be ministering. It's not just that God wants us to grow spiritually, but he wants us to grow together. This growth is not just some wild pods of growth here and there, but that God would see in his church a body growing toward Christ-likeness. You know, I'm not musically trained, but I love music. I love hearing an orchestra. And the orchestra is made up of so many different sections. You got the bowed string instruments, the woodwinds, the brass, the percussion. When all of that comes together, it's a beautiful thing. And we see the, the leader who is directing all of that. And they're individual parts, but they're not going off on some virtuoso type of performance, but they're all working together to bring out something that's very beautiful. And that's what he's speaking about here for the church, that we work together, that we be jointly, whether it be on a committee, in a classroom, or whatever, that we work together for God's glory as a testament. Notice the goal that Paul has here as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith. So this growing up is a maturity toward unity. If we're maturing toward Christ-likeness, if you're maturing toward Christ-likeness and I'm maturing toward Christ-likeness and we're both moving toward that, not only are we becoming more like him, but we're becoming closer to each other. Verse 15 says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way unto him who is the head. Unity in him. And then in verse 14, he speaks of the danger that can come in a person's life. And that is the threat of false teaching. But if we're being trained in the word of God and in solid doctrine, we won't be distracted. We won't be tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of the devil. You see, the devil is a, is a person of disorder. But when we grow up into Christ, we won't be separated by these divergent teachings. And then Paul concludes all of this in verse 16 by using the analogy of a body. And it's not the outward aspects of the body, like the color of our eyes or the color of our hair, but it's what's working inwardly. The whole body fitted 
and knit together by the supporting ligaments, not seen with our normal eye, but working beneath the surface, doing what? Promoting the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. That's God's desire, that his spirit working in us, uniting us, helping us to grow toward Christ's likeness, equipping us for ministry, because if we're going to be together and if we're going to be mature, the natural result would be that it would be a witness and they would go out into ministry. You know, these past two weeks, we've been looking at the body of Christ and how diverse it is, just like each snowflake is unique. You and I are unique. There's no one like you. And I thought, what are we to do with this, with this teaching? Where are we to go here in 2023? I was reading a, a book, and this sort of helped me understand. Back a couple weeks ago before today, Pastor David Chadwick was a basketball player at the University of North Carolina. He's in his 60s now, but he still remembers the lessons that he learned from the famous coach, Dean Smith. And in this book, he talked about 12 leadership principles. And he wrote a chapter titled, Get Better and the Team Gets Better. And he, he wrote that chapter on the basis of a visit that he had had in his coach's office. He went into the coach's office at the end of the year. He was going to be coming back the next year. And every individual was evaluated at the end of that year. And he said to Coach Smith, what can I do to make our team better next year? And very matter-of-factly, Coach Smith said, if you want to help the team be a better individual player, if we want to see our church be the best that it can be, then we individually must be the best that we can be in the Word of God available for ministry, seeking to grow toward Christ's likeness, being united with brother and sister in Christ. Wouldn't we resolve this year, God, I want to be the best version of me, realizing that I'm just one of many other parts here, that you'd be glorified. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, that's our desire this morning, that Lord, as you who is sovereign over all, has chosen to place each of us here in this ministry. Lord, unique we are, but Father, united in these goals toward unity in the body, maturity toward Christ-likeness, ministry beyond these walls and within. Lord, we know and we thank you for your word which will equip us, inform us, empower us to do. Lord, we cannot bypass your word in all of this and your spirit who will speak your truth to us. Father, if there be any here today who have yet to trust in you, have not become a part of the family of God, I pray this day would be the day, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Really, the, the response today of the invitation is this to you today. Will you resolve to be the best?